A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me as we travel through space and time together. This is a series where we look to the past to see what lessons we can learn from history and how hopefully those lessons, insights, can help us build a better future. And God knows we need as much help in that direction as we can at the moment. To help support the series and to get access to exclusive videos every week, sign up to my Patreon.com site. Why don't you? Just go to Patreon.com, look for me by name, part with some cash and sign up. It'd be lovely to see you there and count you as part of the family. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine and set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Greatly inspired and shaped by the American Revolution, a new republic is born. A maelstrom of ruthless political manoeuvring and infighting sees the rise of an emperor, a military mastermind who forms a formidable fighting force. Dominant on the land, he's determined also to rule the waves. But an implacable opponent stands in his way, a naval genius determined to secure the freedom of the seas, and the European dance of death begins. Morning, Neil. Last week we stood side by side with you on the Parisian barricades as hope, freedom and terror swirled around us. Where are we this week? Hello, Paul. Well, this week we're staying in France. From the beginning, the revolution is under threat from forces within and from pretty much all the neighbours whose leaders were frightened by what was happening there and determined to crush it. We're in Paris in the years following 1792, uh, on the way to meeting Napoleon Bonaparte, the military genius who rose from the political maelstrom to lead his country. And we're also meeting the man determined to halt his naval ambitions. Horatio Nelson. We're certainly dealing with matters French, uh, but we're also dealing with something quintessentially British. The characters in play are Napoleon Bonaparte and uh, Admiral Horatio Nelson, who obviously clashed. Uh, not, Not directly, but Napoleon's navy clashed with the navy commanded on that most significant of days by, by Nelson. A bit of background, though, a little, uh, little run-up to it before we get to the Battle of Trafalgar. We spoke recently about the French Revolution, and we contemplated the way in which revolutions so often turn to violence and and the settling of petty grudges, and the settling of scores. And, and shortly after the storming of the Bastille, or within a couple of years, 
it descended into the terror uh, and, the, and the slaughter of tens of thousands of people, some who perhaps had it coming uh, and some who were just the victims of uh, neighbours and, and rivals deciding to seize the opportunity to lay them low. There was a, a continuing sort of handing on of the power of the revolution. France kept on sort of reaching out for different iterations of government. There was a National Assembly, and then the National Assembly was followed by the Directory. The Directory held sway, had the levers of power from, well, the end of 1795 until 1799. During that time, during the under the bailiwick of the Directory, uh, the French economy recovered some ground uh, which had been lost during the madness of the terror. You know, they were so busy bloodletting and pursuing vendettas and, and, and knocking out political rivals that everything else went to hell in a handcart. Uh, but the, the Directory began to get a grip of that and the economy began to stabilise and the army, the, the army of France, began to win wars again, which is always good for national morale. The poor, especially, can be uh, distracted if the town criers and the press are telling them that the, the army is, is dominant. But the, the Directory was also, as was always the case, really, it was a profoundly corrupt institution. It was all backhanders and you know, people, you know, helping themselves to wealth and 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 manoeuvring for you know the, the you know their their own status and their own power and their own and looking after their own interests. And the, so, after you know four or five years, there was a coup d'état, and the directory was was knocked off its perch. But it wasn't really the first time that there had been a, a shuffling of the cards at the at the top. And in the aftermath of that coup d'état came Napoleon Bonaparte. Not quite directly, but the, the coup d'etat that disabled the directory cleared the way for, for Napoleon. And, well, in any, in any event, no one was sad to see the end of the directory because it had just been more trouble than it was worth. Worth pointing out, too, that all the way back to 1792, 1789 was the the year of revolution, but by 1792, the revolution, the the entity, the organism that was the revolution was was under threat, variously and collectively from, well, uh, Austria, uh, Britain, the Netherlands, Prussia, Sardinia, Spain, because revolutions upset the apple cart and uh, other, other nation states looking on at the government being overthrown by something populist, you know, that puts iced water through the tripes of the neighbouring governments, <laughs> like that sort of thing going on. So the, the, there was a general antipathy towards the the revolution, and it, it, especially when it was a bit shaky and it, when it was distracted by its own internal bloodlettings and so on. Was, there were attempts to, you know, by, by others, by the neighbours, to reassert control and to, and to take advantage of the situation. After the fall of the Directory, Napoleon Bonaparte came to the came to the fore, first as general, you know, first as a very successful, charismatic, tactical commander within the army. Then he emerged as first consul, and you'll finally be emperor, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, as we know. And under him, France would gain hitherto unknown 
influence and power over the continent. Uh, he delivered to the people that which the people thought they want, or they were certainly told that it was what they wanted. Napoleon was a demagogue. There's no two ways about it. It's somewhere in the in the love letter to the world we've discussed Polybius, who was a, a philosopher and thinker, a Greek philosopher and thinker and writer, and he was an exponent of, or, or he described the process of anacyclosis. It wasn't his invention, but he finessed the idea of anacyclosis, which is this turning wheel of, of power. Out of chaos comes a good king. He's okay, but his heir takes it for granted, becomes unsatisfactory to the nobles. Then you have an aristocracy. Then the aristocracy decays into oligarchy. Oligarchy is replaced by democracy. Democracy decays into the mob. No one likes the mob, and from within the mob rises the demagogue. And the demagogue persuades everyone, look, this is just chaotic. You're all just, you're eating each other alive. And the demagogue, who's a charismatic figure, rises and says, follow me and I will lead you back to the sunlit uplands. But the time of the demagogue is generally quite brief. Then there's chaos, then there's the king again, the good monarchy. So it's this that's anacyclosis, it's this turning wheel. And we see it around us now, you know, here in the 21st century in the world, you know, where democracy is, is eating itself and it's descending into mob rule and, and so on and so on, and there's demagogues on the rise. So Napoleon was a, was a classic demagogue and he ran roughshod over rights and freedoms that had been established by the revolution. You know, the idea of the, the equality of each individual before the law and, uh, you know, all, all men, all French men and women being equal and all of the rest of it. He ran over that as it suited him. That manifests itself in the, you know, opponents, political opponents were just thrown in jail without trial. He curbed any notion of a free press and the press were quickly only able to uh, print and publish uh, you know, praise for the emperor and his regime. All of it has so many parallels with what's happening around us, where the powerful seek to take control of information. It's important to remember too that the French Revolution had been directly inspired by the American Revolution, when America threw off the yoke of the British monarchy and, and struck out on its own as a, as a republic. And in both, I say it's relevant to consider that, because in both the American and the French revolutions, there was, there was this notion of the power of the people and how it was sacrosanct, which is all well and good. It's fine words, but, you know, fine words don't butter no parsnips. And uh, in America and in France, exactly what the power of the people meant, it was always hard to pin down. It's like watching the aurora borealis up in the sky. You know, it's it's bright and it's got and the lights are beguiling, but they move and it's, it's you know it never stays in place for long enough for you to be sure exactly what it is you're looking at. So the power of the people, yeah, 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 it's great, but show me it, show me it in in real terms. It's very difficult. It's always difficult. History is written by the victors, and the ultimate victors were the people who defeated Napoleon. And so he's always portrayed as a bit of a bogeyman. That the people of England or the people of Britain were, you know, children were raised to be terrified of the very mention of his name. But that is down in no small part to the fact that he lost, and you know he didn't get to he didn't get to write the rest of the story. And 
he was a challenging presence for the rest of the world because there's also an, a, a case for saying that he became a problem for the people around him because he wasn't necessarily willing to play the game at first. There was a, a, a proven practice of people going to the, the central bankers of Europe to fund the next war, you know, borrowing money, repaying money. That was what kept the wheels in motion. And, and Napoleon was initially disinclined to play, to play ball with that. You know, when he, rather than borrow from the, from the banks in Europe, you know, he, he, he had the temerity at one point to, to sign off on the Louisiana Purchase. You know, he, he sold a vast swathe of, of, of French territory in North America to get cash. Which was like, whoa, he pulled, played a fast one there. You know, the, the Louisiana Purchase, you know, he sold, that was the, that was the biggest bargain in, in the history of the establishment of the, you know, the territory of the United States of America. He sold it cheap, but nonetheless, it gave him money that he was able to do what he wanted to do. So he was, he was a handful. But there's no denying that he was loved. He was loved by the French for a long time. And he was a, he was a genius and he was a, a spectacularly successful military tactician. And he was brave and he was a gambler. And he would roll the dice and he knew just how far to push his luck for a long time. And the French loved him for it. But it's also probably true to say that he was prepared to treat the people around him as he pleased. And that he figured that he could do anything he wanted. He could disregard their freedoms. He could disregard the constitution. And he persuaded himself that the people would always forgive him so long as he just gave them bread and victories on the battlefield. It's hard to weigh him up, certainly within the within the context of a you know of a of a few minutes of of a love letter to the world, and certainly the loss that mattered most in the scheme of things in relation to Napoleon was the battle fought at Cape Trafalgar, the naval battle. Napoleon had always was dominant on land; his skill on the battlefield on land was unsurpassed and un, unparalleled, but. In order to pursue world domination, he had to deal with the British Royal Navy at sea. They were the preeminent power on, on the water. And so the, a navy was committed to, to take on the British Navy, and they, they, it came to a head on the 21st of October, 1805. And the fleet, the Royal Navy, was commanded that day by Admiral Horatio Nelson. And there he was on the flagship of the victory. In the same way that I'm quite obsessed about reading about and thinking about the Battle of Isandalawana in Zululand in 1879, I'm also preoccupied with the Battle of Trafalgar. If Napoleon was a genius on land, Nelson was a genius on the waves. In the run-up to the, the Battle of Trafalgar, he told his captains he brought them all together and, and he gave them a strategy uh, but he was quite he was quite blunt with them and said that what he wanted was a pell-mell battle he just wanted each captain to engage the enemy in front of him and he was basically saying to them you know it's that line like everyone's got a plan like like Mike Tyson said everyone's got a plan until they get a punch in the mouth Nelson knew that when you when something like the Battle of Trafalgar starts you can't choreograph it moment by moment. Once it starts, it takes on its own life and identity and inevitability. He said to his captains, I can, I can, give, you, I can give you a basic idea of what we're going to do, but when this kicks off, you're all going to have to kind of look after yourselves and seek victories in your own account. So 
the 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 battle it, it 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 played out with unbearable slowness. The wind kind of dropped as the as the fleets were coming together. It took hours. They could see each other for hours, but they were you know in slow motion coming together. So the the agony of anticipation was there. But then finally, finally the two the two fleets came together, and then the the pell mell battle that Nelson had warned about began to unfold. He was on the deck of the Victory, which was the flagship, his flagship for the battle. And he, he always made a point of being very visible. It was part of the etiquette for the naval commanders of the day. You know, you didn't hide in your cabin while your men were at risk. The class act was to be right out there, you know, on deck. Nelson would wear all his finery. You know, he's very distinctive. You know, his hat, his uniform, all these medals, all these honours. Right, so he was like a, a little strutting peacock. His presence to reassure his own side and also to be uh, in conspicuous defiance of the enemy. Here I am, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough sort of thing. So he was always exposed to danger. And it was something, it was also something in Nelson's character. He was obsessed with the idea that he was going to die. He, 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 was, he was convinced all his life. Every, every time he got, every time he got hurt and wounded, and he was always getting wounded. He was, oh, it's the end of me now. And he, you know, he had a, he had a, you know, he had this, this sort of uh, notion, this a rendezvous with death. You know, he, he thought that he would die young. He had this strange mindset. He was incredibly brave, and he was incredibly casual with his own personal safety. But he also was convinced at the same time that he was going to be killed. So there he is, highly visible on the deck of the of the Victory. And as was the practice of the day, there were snipers, marksmen, up in the rigging of all the ships, you know, picking off people on on the deck. And it was in the nature of the Battle of Trafalgar that a, a great clump of ships came together and got sort of stuck together, British and French, in this dreadful melee of collapsing rigging and, you know, and ships st- stuck and locked together. And a... a a marksman up on the the deck of the French battleship Redoutable saw Nelson because he wasn't it wasn't hard to see him because of his you know the way he presented himself. This French marksman t- fires his musket and the musket ball enters Nelson's body just below the collarbone, down through his he's shot from above so it goes down and through his body and lodges low down in his spine and it is a you know it's a it's a mortal wound. And he's carried down to the cockpit, which is deep down in the down in the bowels of the ship. And they lay like bedding against the the hull of the ship, and it's like three feet thick oak at, at that point. It's the strongest bit of the ship, and they they prop him up on it. But realistically, there isn't much that they can do for him, uh, except you know ply him with alcohol and such like and whatever to try and to try and dull his pain. And the battle the battle is still raging all around them, and it ebbs and flows. And he's he's still conscious, and he's 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 asking for you know constant updates on how things are going, uh, and he's the the victory. Although it's his flagship, and he is the admiral, and he's in command of the fleet. The captain of the victory is Thomas Hardy, and it's him that's that's relaying the information to Nelson moment by moment. And eventually, sometime between about four thirty and five o'clock on the afternoon of the twenty first of October, eighteen o five, he slips away, but not before Hardy is able to assure him of ultimate victory. Thank God, says Nelson, I have done my duty. 
victory was secured, but at the great cost of the admiral, the ultimate hero. He's actually his body was put in a in a barrel of um, brandy to preserve it until they could get him back to London for a state funeral. Uh, and there was a there was a it said that the the sailors took drank from the brandy that he was in, was tapping the admiral. So the point being that Napoleon had dominated the continent of Europe, he dominated the land and he was a genius and he was brave but everything changed really for him after 1805 and Nelson's victory at Trafalgar because Napoleon really had to internalise from that point on that he was landlocked. His ambitions, grand though they still were, would have to remain limited to the land because the great victory on the ocean sea had been achieved by the British Royal Navy under Nelson. There were a lot more moves on the way for Napoleon. Things, broadly speaking, went his way until on land until 1812, when he invaded Russia. And he took in the Grande Armée of in excess of half a million men uh, with a view to conquering Russia. And as he progressed... The, the Russian force did what the Russian force had done before and would do again in World War Two. It pulled back into its own endless interior and Napoleon's Grand Army just kept on coming forward and the Russian force just kept on withdrawing in the face of it until finally Mikhail Kutuzov, who was the, the Russian commander, positioned his, his force at Borodino on the road on the approach to Moscow for a pitched battle. And the Battle of Borodino played out on the 7th of September, 1812. And the combined death toll on the day between the French and the Russians was 75,000 dead. You can visualise it by thinking of a fully laden jumbo jet passenger plane crashing every three minutes from dawn till dusk. It was, it's in the scale of carnage of battles fought at any time, anywhere in the world. You know, Borodino is right up there with the worst of the worst. But Kutuzov just pulled back. He pulled back into Moscow itself and then out the backside. And Napoleon came in with his army and they, they set up home in Moscow thinking that Kutuzov and the Russians would come back and they would have another, another confrontation. But Kutuzov just melted away. He just took his army and vanished, leaving the Russian winter to do what the Russian winter always does. And so then began the, the, you know, the terrible retreat of the French out of Russia, and the winter harvested them. Uh, something like well, maybe as many as 120,000 maybe got back out of Russia from half a million who went in. After that failed invasion of Russia, Napoleon's ambitions were were bleeding. Whether he knew that there were mortal wounds or not, he was bleeding in, in ways that he would not survive. And there were more steps, more complicated choreography in the long dance to destruction. Uh, but it all ended for him in 1815 at Waterloo with another Englishman, Wellington. Napoleon offered his surrender aboard the British battleship Bellerophon and he told Captain, Captain Frederick Maitland of the, of the Bellerophon, he said to him, I have come to throw myself on the protection of your prince and laws 
And then over dinner, and it's so civilised, over dinner aboard the Bellerophon that evening, he said, If it had not been for you English, I would have been Emperor of the East, but wherever there is water to float a ship, we are sure to find you in our way. So, that was it. That was it for, that was it for Napoleon. After 1805, after Trafalgar, he had continued to hold sway. He had continued to be a, a dominant force. He'd continued to be an inventive, you know, tactical genius. But he was always landlocked. And the truth of it is, what Nelson, what Admiral Horatio Nelson achieved there on the 21st of October, 1805, was the freedom of the ocean sea. And the British Royal Navy would spend the next 100 years maintaining that freedom of the ocean sea. And I suppose, in sum, you would have to say that the Battle of Trafalgar was Admiral Nelson's greatest victory and his greatest monument. A momentous milestone is reached, but where it happened and exactly when are a mystery. Human beings of one sort or another have been on Earth for over two million years, living, dying and surviving against the odds. Then, in the first decade of the 19th century, a child was born, a new life taking the world's population to one billion for the very first time. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies. You'll find a lot. Details are attached. My Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.